And then would you like to turn to Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse 14. I'm bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse." Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. Birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. One of the things that uh, we will see as we uh, continue to go through Paul's letter to the Romans is that it's, it's almost like listening in on a telephone conversation where you hear one side uh, but there's something else being said to which the person you can hear is responding, you have to kind of guess what they're responding to. And Paul, it's like he's imagining someone asking him questions all the way through and he responds. So he says um, in verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. The person at the other end says, why is that then? Well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says. Oh, why aren't you ashamed? Well, it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. In what way is it powerful? Well, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Oh, why do we need righteousness from God? Well, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. Well, how do they suppress the truth? And how is God's wrath revealed? And so he goes on to answer. He's answering these questions all the way through. Last time, we were looking at verse 16. I started to look at verse 16, where Paul is speaking of his confidence in the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He says, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. We looked at this matter of God revealing truth, the truth about righteousness, Righteousness is by faith. And so we come to this question. Why do we need that then? 
and verse 18 gives us the solemn reason why we desperately need for God to intervene in our lives and reveal righteousness to us. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of man. That's a sobering verse. And incidentally, uh, different people have different ways of uh, pronouncing that word. Uh, I come from the south of England. I pronounce it wrath. Some people pronounce it wrath. I actually looked it up in the dictionary to see the correct way to pronounce it. And apparently the correct way, according to my dictionary, the correct way to pronounce it is wrath, which sounds horribly upper class. So let's just call it wrath. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. This is a problem verse for many people. Many people feel that this is out of place and inconsistent with the message of the New Testament. Where people today believe in God... Generally speaking, the God that they choose to believe in is a God that they have created, a God who is good-humored, full of fun, benevolent, kind, always accepting. That's a comfortable God. And people, if they're going to believe in a God, would rather believe in a God like that. A God who condones anything, overlooks our little misdemeanors, always looks for the best in people, and is generally benevolent and nice. And so when you come to this, the wrath of God, this looks kind of primitive. It looks out of place to people who think like that. And and sadly, even among people who believe the Bible or claim to believe the Bible, there is a growing trend towards what theologians call inclusivism. That is the idea that God ultimately will accept everyone. That we maybe have too narrow a view of God, an exclusive view of God, that actually God is much more inclusive than we ever realized, that somehow everyone will ultimately find salvation. And again, this idea of wrath is, is therefore dismissed. If If we get rid of any truth, it's a bit like when dominoes are set up, you know, and you you touch the first one, the first domino falls, and then they all fall. And here Paul is unfolding his gospel. First point he makes, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. If we knock that one down, then everything else goes down. Because if we knock that one down, then really our salvation becomes much less. Because... If God just is generally nice and benevolent and everyone is accepted, well then, fine. There's no no big deal, really. If we understand the wrath of God against sin, then that God should ever forgive us is amazing. And so, gratitude is there. Uh, Just a sheer appreciation of the grace of God and so on. Get rid of this. There's no grace, no gratitude, no passion It's just indifference. But what do we mean by wrath? Certainly we don't mean uncontrolled bad temper. We don't mean fits of rage. And at a human level, that is 
may be our understanding of wrath. It's someone who is generally bad-tempered, someone to be avoided, someone who maybe has a bit of problem, uh, a bit of a problem of inferiority, and they compensate by rage. There are people who are like that. We're not talking about that with God. We're talking here about the sovereign God. We're talking about something that is, to use the word properly, awesome. God's wrath is awful and awesome. God is holy and God hates sin. And the wrath of God is God's holy anger at evil. If we understand it as believers, if we understand it, this might come as a surprise to you, but I would feel if we understand it, it should cause us to worship him. We should be amazed at God and worship him. Back in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 15, after the amazing deliverance that God has brought to his oppressed people, the Hebrews, slaves for generations in Egypt, God has brought them out. They go through the Red Sea. God causes the Red Sea to open. They go through on dry ground. As their enemies come after them, the water piles back. And in Genesis 15, Exodus 15, we have this song, I will sing to the Lord. Moses and all the Israelites sing. And in, among the things that they sing, in verse 6, Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. And what they, they're worshipping God for this. They're praising God. Your right hand, O Lord, majestic in power. You unleashed your burning anger at these evildoers, these oppressors. Those who had been oppressing God's people. Then it goes, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. The unfailing love of God and his burning anger, both together. And that causes them to worship. This is our God. And so Paul here is saying, I'm not ashamed of the good news. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's salvation and there's wrath. The two go together because without it, God would be, as it were, overlooking sin, tolerating evil. And to tolerate is to condone. But God's glory includes an unchanging, uncompromising, terrifying holiness. And holiness must imply a hatred of evil. If God were not a God of wrath, ultimately there would be no justice at the center of God's creation. And where there's no justice everything collapses. There are parts of the world, there are nations of the world where there isn't justice. You look to the people who should be enforcing law and they're they're there waiting for a bribe. You get to the law courts and the person will get so-called justice who has the money to bribe the judges. There are nations that are like that, sadly. 
They're terrible places to live because the whole fabric of society is affected by that. Where there's corruption right at the heart, then everything fails. If God turned a blind eye to evil, then the whole thing falls apart. But God is a God of terrifying holiness. Here in chapter 1, where it's speaking about the state of the world, in verse 32, the final verse of chapter 1, it says, They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. One of the marks of a sinful world is that people actually approve of evil. If God turned a blind eye to evil, then he's as bad as the rest, approving of evil. But God is not like that. God is not indifferent. There is justice. In chapter 12 of this letter, in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Paul says, or verse, verse, verse 17, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. See, there is justice at the heart of God's creation. So we don't need to take revenge. We leave room for God's wrath. And God says, it's mine to avenge. So God is not indifferent to sin. God is not indifferent to evil. God is angry with sin. People sometimes try to soften it, and we can understand their motives when they say, God hates the sin and loves the sinner. Well, that is partly true. God loves sinners. But ultimately, because he hates sin, you can't detach the behavior from the person. And it is sinners who will be finally judged. It is sinners who will suffer eternal torment. Not just sin. God is angry with sin. This is the start point for Paul's gospel. As he is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel... Why not, Paul? Well, it's powerful, he says. In what way is it powerful? Well, it's about righteousness from God, and we need righteousness from God because of God's terrifying holiness. Who can stand before him? No one dares stand before him. But there's this wonderful provision of righteousness that covers our need. That's what Paul is thrilled with. To understand his thrill, you've got to understand the predicament. And the predicament is God hates sin. And everyone has sinned. This is the reason for the cross. If we remove the wrath of God, then, then the dominoes start to fall. And if we remove the wrath of God, well then, why the cross? Why did Jesus have to die in that way? Why that cruel suffering? The explanation is God's wrath against sin. God hates sin. This is the reason for the cross. Jesus dying in our place, suffering the wrath of God. This is the reason why we need salvation. And this is not just an isolated reference. Time and again, the Bible speaks in these terms. Back in 
John's Gospel, John chapter 3. John 3 verse 36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. There's the situation. God's wrath is on everyone who sins. But if you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. If you don't believe in the Son, you remain where everyone else is. God's wrath remains on you. In Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul is describing our condition and our guilt before God, he says in Ephesians 2 and verse 3, All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. It's not just our behavior, it's our very nature earns God's anger. There is depravity in every part of us. We are not how God wants us to be. And then in Revelation chapter 6, as uh, John gets this vision of immediate future, distant future, it's all swirling around in the mist. And in Revelation chapter 6, He sees towards the end, in verse 15, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Terrifying picture of people who are outside of Christ. It's in Christ there's eternal life. If we don't have eternal life in Christ, the wrath of God remains on us. And here is this terrifying picture of people who realize too late that they have ignored salvation and they face God's wrath. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. Who would dare look in the face of an angry God? Terrifying. This is where the gospel begins. This is where it starts. Well, Paul says here, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. To which we can ask the question, where? What are you talking about, Paul? Where is God's wrath being revealed? Well, we could look back into the past, and as we look through our Old Testament, we see time and again examples of God acting in judgment. We looked at one example when, uh, when the Egyptians perished in the water of the Red Sea so God's people could be set free. There's an example of the wrath of God. There are many others, but Paul doesn't refer to the past. He says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Certainly, the wrath of God has been revealed, but he's talking here, seems to be talking about a present reality. Of course, it's also a future fact that the wrath of God will be revealed. There will be a day of God's wrath. But he's not talking about past or future primarily. He's talking about something that is is being revealed. Well, where is God's wrath seen? That's a reasonable question. First of all, the wrath of God is seen in the gospel. Because the gospel is about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. About the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. 
And as we look, as we've already said, if you look at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ there, you see wrath and you see mercy. You see the love of God giving his son to die in our place. And you see the wrath of God against our sin. In chapter 3 of verse 25 here in Romans, in the NIV, it's somewhat translated almost out of existence, but it says, God presented him, that is Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Other versions say, God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood. And if you don't understand the word propitiation, then the NIV makes a lot more sense. But what it really means in the footnote here says, or as the one who would turn aside his wrath. When Jesus was crucified, I think we can wrongly dwell on the physical sufferings as if that was what made it unique. No, there was someone being crucified either side of him. The physical suffering was horrendous, but that isn't what it was about. What it was about was him suffering God's wrath that we deserve. And so read the account in, for example, in Mark's gospel. Obviously, it's in all of the gospels, but in Mark's gospel, chapter 14, You see Jesus just before he is arrested, going with his friends to a garden, a way to pray. And he says in Mark 14, 33, he took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. What was it? What was it that was the horror that gripped him at that point? Deeply distressed, overwhelmed with sorrow. Well, as we read forward, we know what was happening here. He is contemplating this awful experience of God's anger. We're talking here about the Son of God. We're talking here about the second person of this glorious trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, living from everlasting to everlasting, from eternity, living together in a bond of love and unity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have this plan for our salvation. The Son willingly comes to effect this wonderful plan. And as he comes... There's the voice from heaven, this is my son whom I love. He has his father's approval all the way through. He's always lived in his father's approval. He's always lived in unbroken love, a a concept we can hardly imagine. And all through his life, getting alone with his father, spending a night in prayer with his father, just enjoying what he'd always enjoyed from all eternity, and the approval of his father. But now, at this dire moment, the moment of his most costly obedience, he won't have his father's approval. He will experience what he has never previously experienced. His father's displeasure, but beyond that, his father's fierce, burning anger all unleashed on him as he takes our filth on himself.
and suffers what we justly deserve. That's what he's contemplating. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And so the story unfolds. And he is taken and he is arrested and there are the terrible, terrible sufferings. And there he is on the cross. And it says in chapter 15, uh, verse 33 of Mark's Gospel, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. What's happening? God's anger is being unleashed. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know why. God's anger against sin. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Every time we preach the gospel, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven God's anger against our sin suffered by the one who deserved no such thing. Jesus dying in our place. This is our gospel. God will not turn away from sin. God will not overlook it or ignore it. God is holy. He will never condone sin. Sin must be punished. Punished in another, a substitute who willingly gives himself for us. In the gospel, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. All our sin is dealt with there. All our godlessness, all our wickedness, wrath poured out against it. That's the only explanation for the horror of what Christ suffered. But the wrath of God is also being revealed more widely. The wrath of God is revealed there in the gospel as we look at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to also say the wrath of God is revealed in the world around us. And so I read into the passage. We, we, I don't know if you followed it, but we, we read there of, of people's rejection of God, not glorifying him as God, worshipping created things, denying the creator, And what does it say? Verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. It's reinforced in verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. Men abandoned natural relations with women, were inflamed with lust for one another. God gave them over into this. Verse 28, furthermore, since they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. The wrath of God is being revealed. God's wrath being revealed there in a way that we might find rather surprising. Not coming in judgment in the sense of suffering, but God saying, okay, if that's what you want, go that way. God giving them over, not giving us up, but giving us over into our godless choices. And so God's wrath is seen in these ways that are outlined there. In fact, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was uh, expounding this, said, if we want to ask the question, 
Why is the world as it is? The answer is the wrath of God. Or to narrow it down, why is Britain as it is? It's the wrath of God. Our nation shows all the hallmarks of a people with whom God is angry. Read what it says there in chapter 1. It's like reading the news. It's like watching the television. This is the stuff that is happening all around. Things that God forbids being declared good. The creator denied. Worshipping matter, not the one who created it. All of these things, these are things that are happening around us. And it says, the wrath of God is revealed. He is giving people over to their choices. Our nation has been given over to its choices. And so we see the things that now just run rampant, accepted at an alarming rate, things that once would have been turned away from in horror. That's God's judgment against the people. That's evidence of God's wrath being revealed. Now, Paul says God's wrath is revealed in specific cases, he says, against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Paul singles out two things there that particularly provoke God's wrath. Godlessness and wickedness. The order is almost certainly significant. Godlessness comes first. Godlessness leads to wickedness. Where God is rejected, then wickedness inevitably follows. Because if we remove God from the whole picture, then we're also removing the possibility of any kind of absolute. Who decides what's right and what's wrong if God is not part of the picture? Right and wrong then become, what, a matter of public opinion? What most people approve? It always astounds me when you hear people of a secular mindset pronouncing certain things wrong. You think, who said so? Things are only wrong if God says they're wrong. And if you remove God from it, there are no absolutes. Godlessness leads to wickedness. As night follows day, it's inevitable. It will happen. Right and wrong disappear as concepts where there is no God. And wickedness is seen here in a specific way, the specific way of being suppressing the truth. The godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. This refusal to even consider the obvious. It's not debating and then dismissing the truth. It's suppressing the truth. Refusing to consider it. That's very much the culture we're in, isn't it? You can discuss many things. But discuss what God says. And people will say, no, we mustn't talk about that. You keep your faith to yourself. Suppressing the truth. Suppressing the obvious. And so they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God nor gave thanks to him. Their thinking became futile. Though they claimed to be wise, they became fools. We live in a world where 
that really could be written over the whole culture, claiming to be wise, but becoming fools. And so we are encouraged to believe, and we'll go into all of this in more detail as we work through, but we're encouraged to believe that we live in a world that has just happened. Now, it is obvious, I mean, we're not going to get into that discussion, but it's obvious, I'm standing here behind a lectern, or alongside it, or walking around it. None of us would believe that this fine piece of church furniture, that this just happened. None of us would believe that it kind of materialized, that it just happened. We would recognize that it was made. And if we're prepared to say that, we say, well, that's obvious with regard to something like this, and yet we can look at the magnificence of creation and say, no, it just happened. Wait a minute, this is foolish. It is foolish. Claiming to be wise, becoming fools. Refusing to see the obvious. Why? Because if you see the obvious, you have to admit there's God. And if you admit there's God, you have to have dealings with him. And so because of the refusal to admit there is a God, you then have to start suppressing truth. Because you cannot follow things through to their logical conclusion. If you say things were made, then there's a maker. We can't have a maker. And so everything just happened. That's the way it works. And that their, their thinking became futile. Suppressing the truth, refusing to hear it, consider it, give it any kind of airtime at all. You see an example of that, a terrible example of that in Acts chapter 7. Young man Stephen is preaching to people who hate every word he's saying, but he's preaching truth. And he gets to the point where he touches a raw nerve in what he is saying, and it says, covering their ears and shouting at the top of their voices, they rushed on him covering their ears, shouting, drowning out his voice and covering their ears so they can't hear it, suppressing the truth. Because what he's saying is true. They don't want it. Suppress it. And that brings the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against godlessness, denying God, which leads to wickedness. And that, that is a matter of suppressing truth. Because we want to go our way. We do not want to submit to God. And the only outcome is wrath. It is impossible to have a moral society, a moral culture, without God. Loving God always comes first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor as yourself arises from loving God. Remove God, everything disintegrates. That's Paul's expose of why we need righteousness from God. We need our sin dealt with. It is an imperative. So, what do we do about this? What, what's the outcome? We see this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. First of all, all of us need to see that there are but two options. Righteousness from God 
or wrath from God. They are the options. There is no third option. There is no middle ground, no overlap. Righteousness from God, accepting what Jesus did at the cross, receiving it, receiving salvation, saying, my sin is covered because an innocent man died in my place. Jesus died in my place, suffering what I deserve. I receive that salvation by faith, and now I'm going to live with him. Either righteousness from God or wrath from God. They are the options. So personally, that has to be faced. Many of us here have faced that. And we have received righteousness from God. Having received righteousness from God, there is no fear of wrath. There is no overlap between the two. One category or the other. You move from one into the other. Out of wrath into righteousness. And that is then our permanent place. No fear of wrath again because Jesus on the cross said, it's finished. He dealt with it fully. He fully dealt with everything that earns, which should earn us the wrath of God. Righteousness. But without that, it's only the fearful expectation of seeing that face where they say to the rocks and mountains, fall on us and hide us from his face. You get the horror of that. Sometimes there are stories that hit the headlines, maybe a mining accident or something. There's been a rock fall. And there are people trapped underground. And all the emergency services and so on brought into action to rescue these people. The rocks have fallen on them. We must get to them. In Revelation, it speaks about people inviting that to happen rather than face God's wrath. To be, to be smothered by a rockfall is preferable to seeing the wrath of God. A terrible, terrible prospect. God's anger against in two categories. Righteousness from God or wrath from God. For those of us who have received righteousness from God, we need to also see how it stands for everyone else. This is our incentive, isn't it, for mission? If we have a benevolent, inclusive God, why go to nations? Why go to the next street, next door? Why bother Why put yourself out to share the gospel with people if it's going to be all right for them anyway in the end? But that isn't how it is. There's eternal life or the wrath of God remaining on you. And people who haven't got eternal life in Christ, that's what they face. And that is our incentive for mission. It's not optional. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is put on planet earth to declare God's wisdom. The the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is put here not just for us to look after one another and be a nice supportive kind of environment. We're here on a mission. We're here because there's a world out there of people who face a prospect that is too terrible to even begin to, to think about. And so we have, we we looked at John chapter 3, verse 36. We need to get the sober implications of that. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That is where people stand who are not in Christ. Paul writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 
He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. That's Paul's motivation, or part of his motivation. He understands about the wrath of God. He knows we've all got to stand before God's judgment seat, and he sees around him thousands of people who know nothing of this, thousands, millions, who have never heard of God's unique provision, the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. Our incentive for mission is just this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Let's get hold of it. Let's not just mess around to say the church is, well, we just go go on Sunday and so on. I like the people. It's nice to be with them. So that's great. No, we're here on a mission. We're here to get locked in to say, no, we're part of this body and we're supporting one another. We're we're involved here in seeking God and reaching out into Sheffield and we have these flags around every week to remind us there's a world out there. There's Sheffield, there's, there's Great Britain, there's Europe and so onwards. There's a world that needs to hear of God's unique provision. So in Centre for Mission... It's our incentive for prayer, for persistent, persevering prayer. Back in the Old Testament, in the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2, the prophet says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And surely that's going to be our prayer. Oh God, in wrath, remember mercy. We live in a nation, as I've said, that bears all the hallmarks of a nation with which God is angry. God has given us over to terrible choices. Our children in school are taught some terrible things about morality, about sexuality, things that God hates being taught as normal. That's God giving us over. Oh, God, in wrath, remember mercy. Lord, have mercy on this nation. We can't be indifferent, can we? We cannot just say, I don't like prayer meetings. As if a prayer meeting is there for people who just feel inclined. There's a passion about this. There's the wrath of God. And there are people who face the wrath of God. And surely, whether we like prayer meetings or not, or whether Friday evening suits us or not, there's a world out there. And we've got to pray. Oh God, remember mercy. How can we sit around, arms folded, or doing other things, ignoring these issues? Paul begins here as he's explaining why he's passionate about this gospel. I'm eager to go to Rome and preach there. Why? Or because God's wrath is revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men. That's what drives him. He's thrilled with this gospel. It's not all fear. He's thrilled with it. He's thrilled with righteousness from God. But there's passion. We've got to reach these people. He wants to go to Rome. He wants to move on to Spain. He wants to go as far as God will allow him to go. 
to preach this unique message, there's a saviour. There's a saviour who rescues people. There's a saviour who stood in our place and took what we dare not take so that we could be forgiven. That's not just a nice message. That's not just something to discuss and debate. That's something to get fired up about. Say, oh God, this message must get out. Oh God, we cannot be complacent. We must move out and pray and seek to reach people with this message. So what do we do about it? Well, personally, there's a choice. Righteousness from heaven, wrath from heaven. There's an incentive for mission. There's an incentive to pray, but also our attitude to God, to, to respect God, to fear God. Yes, we love him. We've been singing songs of worship to him. Of course, we love him. It's love with great respect. The gospel can't be considered kind of casually. Our God is a God to be feared. Whoever it was wrote to the Hebrews, it's an anonymous book, but in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says, Since we're receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Yeah, we worship God. We've, we've got grace from God. We're thankful. We love him. But there's reverence and awe. Oh God, you're a consuming fire. So we treasure our salvation. We treasure the provision of righteousness. We, we don't take these things lightly. And having received righteousness from God, we use it to live right. Had that scripture about the, the fruit of repentance. If we've received righteousness, it's going to change how we live. We can't lapse back into things that God hates. He's delivered us out of all of that. Jesus suffered for all of that. We can't go back into it. It's horrible stuff. It must be a change of life in the fear of God. Paul, as he unfolds his gospel, he introduces it, doesn't he, in verse 1, if you remember that, the gospel of God, God's gospel. Paul's gospel is God's gospel. This is our God. This is what God is like. He is holy. He is angry with evil. And he's a pardoning God who makes righteousness possible incredibly by taking his wrath upon himself in the person of his son so that we need never know anything about it. What an amazing God. 